Today's minor prophet is Micah. I pinched that picture off his Facebook feed. <laughs> Although I must confess there weren't many entries recently. Now he's called a minor prophet, not because he's underage, or because he worked down pit. It's because his prophetic writing is smaller in length than the more wordy prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So they, they put all the little ones together and just kind of put them together and call them minors, and then have the major ones more up front. Now Micah, whose name means, who is like Yahweh? Imagine calling him, him in for tea. Who is like Yahweh? Now he was a virtual unknown from an insignificant place, so we can all identify with him, and nobody from nowhere, because we all know that God can and does work through nobodies. He did it then, he does it now. Ordinary people responding to an extraordinary God. Now Micah's contemporaries, that's just a posh word for saying those were around at the same time, uh, were Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea. We've already heard about Hosea. Alan spoke to us about Hosea. Isaiah came from the posh end of town. He was a cousin of the king. He was born in a royal palace, uh, a scholar with an upper-class, wealthy background, whereas Micah, by contrast, was a man of the soil, a countryman, a rural prophet with a heart for ordinary people. And he became known as the prophet of social reform. Now, at this time, following the death of Solomon, God's people were divided. Nothing new there then, is there? God's people have always been divided. Put them in a room together, they can't agree, and they'll soon split into two. There were ten tribes in the north, calling themselves Israel, and there were two tribes in the south known as Judah. And Isaiah and Micah both prophesied into the two tribes in the south, whereas Hosea and Amos spoke to the tribes in the north. Now Micah was, he observed corruption, bribery among the judges and the priests, even the prophets, they would give you a good word if you gave them a bit of money. They would make sure that the word they would pronounce was a positive one. There was greed, there was cheating, there was violence, there was cruelty. Crime was on the increase. Sin was infiltrating every level of society. The rich and the powerful were abusing the poor. Family relationships were breaking down. There was idolatry, immorality, and injustice. Sounds familiar, you may say. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. But this was happening amongst God's people. That's like saying this was happening in the church, which puts a completely different complexion on it. They were violating the covenant standards of God's kingdom. 
Micah couldn't bear to see what God's people were doing to each other, and he says in 3 verse 8, I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, and with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. He warned that God would bring the Assyrians to take out the northern kingdom and to devastate Jerusalem, and afterwards that Babylon would bring in an even greater destruction. Now interesting, one little interesting fact about Micah is that very often he went around naked. (laughs) Not all the time, but some of the time he went around naked to illustrate the severity of the destruction that was coming. Isaiah did similar during his ministry. He went around naked, right? Because the prophets lived the message that they carried. So one day, we don't know, Mark Birch Machin might come in in his speedos. But although God accuses and warns the people, he also gives them hope. And from bad news, Micah switches to good news. And he speaks of the restoration that God will bring after his judgment. God will shepherd the faithful remnant and gather all the nations to Israel. There will be world peace centered on Zion under the leadership of a new Davidic king. Now you may be sat there thinking, because you haven't done your homework, that's why you're thinking this. I know nothing about Micah. He's, a, he's, a, he's an unknown to me, completely. And yet there are some well-known passages in Micah that you will be aware of. So we're going to look at a few. The first one we're going to look at is Micah 4, verses 1 to 4. Now, when you hear this, you'll think, I'm sure I've heard that somewhere before. And that's because it is almost identical to Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. So somebody's being copying of somebody else. Either that or the Holy Spirit thought, I'll just give him the same. I won't put it on the screen, but I'll just read it. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. I quite fancy sitting under a vine or in the fig tree. Micah speaks here about the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. 
and the presence of many nations living with one another in peace and serenity, coming to Jerusalem to worship Jesus, the reigning King. Micah 5, verses 2 to 4. Now this one is quoted in Matthew 2, when the chief priests, the chief priests and scribes respond to King Herod when the wise men come. Okay? It's also referred to in John 7, verse 42, and it's read all over the world each year as part of Christmas preparations and celebrations. And it goes like this. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Or perhaps another way of expressing it is this. Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was white as snow. He came to save the world from sin, to die that we might know. That's probably the only bit you'll remember all day. <laughs> Micah 6, verse 6 to 8. The first part of this passage is as follows. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The people were outwardly religious, practicing empty ceremony. It was a ceremony that they thought would fulfill everything that God required. Behind this was the idea that as long as they stayed true to custom and outward appearances, that God would therefore bless them. But the problem was that true worship and heart attitude had been replaced with empty ritual, the curse of religion. And it's something which can creep into our lifestyle as well. We get into a routine, we get into a familiarity, we keep on doing the good things. And very often we find that there's more ritual there than there is substance. So it's good to take, back and take a step back and review just what it is that's undergirding your relationship with God and how you're expressing that relationship in a practical day-to-day -day way. Such ritual was used by them to cover up their daily unjust dealings and dishonest practices. 
1 Samuel 15 verse 22 says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So God's response in the second part of that Micah passage, and this will be the bit you'll probably recognize, goes like this. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God's not interested in burnt offerings. He's not interested in hollow ceremony for the sake of it. Or just tradition, we always do it this way because we've always done it this way and we always will do it this way. This verse, verse 8, is a meditation text. It's worthy of much pondering and prayerful reflection to work out the implications of what does that mean for me and my lifestyle? The rabbis have said that this verse is a one-line summary of the whole law. Justice in defending the helpless, kindness in speech and lifestyle, humility in serving God. And it's this verse that Jesus refers to in Matthew 23 when he talks about the weightier matters of the law. When he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and come in and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So they were quite anal about some things. Tithing mint and dill and cumin, their spices, they were weighing them out to make sure that a tenth was going. And yet the weightier matters, the big things, they were just completely blind to. Because the Pharisees' religion was all tradition and legalism. They ignored justice, mercy, and faithfulness altogether. Their theology, their view and understanding of God, how they lived their lives, it impacted them and other people. And the same is true for us. What we really believe about God shows in the way that you live your life. What you really believe. Not what you just sing. Sometimes we sing a load of lies because what we sing up here, we don't really believe. Believe in the sense of live it out in our lives. We'll sing just to go along with the crowd. But what we really believe manifests in the way that you live your life. For example, Many Christians believe that Jesus died in our place to bear the punishment for our sins and satisfy the wrath of God's justice so that God can love and accept us in all eternity. Don't feel worried if you believe that. It's a common belief. But it's a belief that when you get to the under bit, it's actually rooted in an angry God theology. An angry God theology. And most of us have been brought up on an angry God theology. 
I mean, we have a good variety of teaching and preaching here at the Bay. I think we're particularly blessed with the mix of people who share both on a morning and on an evening on a Sunday. But no one is like Jonathan Edwards. And I don't mean the triple jumper. I mean Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century American revivalist theologian who preached the following to his congregation. Now, he didn't preach this on the streets. He preached this to his congregation. Right? This is like Alan getting up and preaching this to you lot. Okay? This is just an extract. So just sit back and imagine that he was your pastor. This is what he says. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fires, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. So you can see he was a bit of a liberal softy, really, wasn't he? <laughs> a tad extreme, you might think. Here's another perspective from somebody a bit closer to home. John Crowder from his book, Cosmos Reborn. There's the lad. We were taught in Sunday school that God created mankind, Adam and Eve, placing them in the garden of pleasure. This, we were told, was plan A that God always intended to hang out in a garden with a couple of naked vegetarians. <laughs> Everything was going fine. All was perfection until one day, lo and behold, mankind did the unthinkable. He ate God's apple. Now nobody does that. You can't just disobey God and get away with it. Somebody has to pay the price. God became fuming angry. God suddenly became enraged, spitting mad. God's holiness had somehow been offended. He was personally peeved. The scales of balance had to be set right. God is love, we are told but forget not his wrath. Justice had to be paid. That apple had to be accounted for. Somebody would burn over this. Somebody was going to feel the full force of his raging fury. Bloodthirsty, God's anger had to be appeased. He had to wreak vengeance and destroy. I'll teach you to eat an apple. And so, with purple veins bulging from his temple, 
his wild eyes red-hot with destruction like Thor swinging his lightning hammer from the sky, God was about to open a can of destruction, give you what you deserve. Filled with bloodlust, he reared back his arm, about to unleash the hot kraken of hell on mankind. But wait, suddenly Jesus steps in. Good cop, bad cop. Job jumps in front of you, and instead of God hurling his bloodlust upon you, he unleashes it upon his own son, satisfying his rage by brutally murdering his own child. This is the part where we're supposed to stand up and cheer. Here is the good news. God really hated you, but since he savagely massacred his own child, he's decided to love you as long as you pray this prayer. Because our justice system in the UK is essentially punitive, that means based on punishment, we've taught that this is what God's like. But it's not true. God's justice is and always has been restorative. Having the ability to restore health, strength and well-being, his justice is mercy and love, not punishment and retribution. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. The cross was an act of love. The purpose of the cross was to undo the consequences of Adam's sin, a loss of identity, which produced spiritual death. It was a demonstration not of God's wrath against humanity or against his son, but of his love towards humanity. When Jesus took the sin of the whole world upon his shoulders, he was showing us the full extent of God's love. And this wasn't a solo act. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And that truth wasn't temporarily suspended at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 says, God was, where? In Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God wasn't kind of like turning away because he just could not bear to look upon sin when his son was on the cross. He was in Christ. They went through it together. God hates sin, not because his own personal holiness has been called into question. He hates it because of the way it hurts us, drawing us into shame, into insecurity, rejection, fear. Jesus was not crucified in order to purchase the Father's love for us or in some way to change God. God doesn't need changing. On the cross, Jesus was not changing God. He was changing you. 
God's justice does not break people, it heals those who are broken. Now it's important that we grasp this, that we receive a revelation about God's love and character. Because lurking deep within, some of us still think and worry about a Father God who is angry. Got to keep on the right side. Some Christians believe in an angry God that somehow Jesus is keeping in check. Such a perception undermines our relationship with Father God. Brad Jerzak says, God doesn't need to punish anyone. Sin is its own punishment. No one gets away with anything. There are terrible consequences for our actions, but God is forever with us, weaving grace into our stories to redeem even the worst situations for our good. If we believe in an angry and vengeful God, we will knowingly and unknowingly display the same traits ourselves. And this is only too obvious and prevalent when you look on social media. Christians can be so judgmental, opinionated, unloving, superior, especially with one another. But I suppose that's an inevitable consequence of seeing yourself as right. There's so many right Christians on the internet. I'm just amazed. And they're all there telling the other how wrong they are because they're right. And then they come back and quote a text which they've dragged out of context to prove that, no, no, you're wrong and I'm right. And they spend all their life, they set, they set up whole things on the internet to kind of bash somebody. There's a Bethel bashing thing on the internet. And these sad people, they just kind of look for something and then they just make a point of it. And then lo and behold, about 40 of them kind of flood to say, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're all sinners down there. Yeah, they're all going to hell there. I mean, have they not got something better to do with their lives? These are Christians, for glory's sake. One thing is for certain, the way a lot of Christians act, it is definitely not the outworking of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. Let's pray. Stand yourselves up. Put your hand on your heart rather than on the next person. And repeat after me. Now I'm going to make it a little bit easier for those of you who are going to keep your eyes open. I'm going to put the words on the screen. Okay? So repeat after me. Father God, I thank you for your awesome love for me. Which you continue to pour out without conditions. I seek a greater revelation of your love. 
I hunger for a fresh encounter with your love. Father, I surrender my spirit, soul, and body to you. Manifest your glory and presence in and through my life. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you.